Did you grow up in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s? Then you might want to tune into Gen X Grown Up, the podcast by Gen Xers who refuse to outgrow the things they grew up loving. Join the Gen X Grown Ups each week to talk media, tech, toys, and games from yesterday and today through the eyes of Generation Xers. You can also enjoy their Backtrack episodes, where they choose a single topic, like The Walkman, and dig in deep to discuss why they remember them so fondly. To find their podcast and YouTube channel, go to genxgrownup.com. Technology is accelerating and your world is about to change. Imagine this. In 10 years, you begin planning your family Christmas party, but it's different than you'd expect. There's no need to find plane tickets for out-of-town relatives. You don't need to spend hours cleaning your house and cooking for everyone. Instead, you host this party in a virtual room. Everybody watches their favorite holiday film together, and you hang out with avatars who mimic your family members' mannerisms. Everybody 3D or even 4D prints their meal and can enjoy it from the comfort of their own home in any part of the world. Now, this sounds probably like something out of a sci-fi novel, but you'd be surprised to learn that much of this technology is already underway. Some of it already exists. Today, we explore what that means for mankind. This is your host, Craig James, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. From ancient philosophy to modern science, we'll explore the questions that will shape civilization for years to come. This season on Big Audacious Idea, we're examining what it means to be human and asking the questions that sometimes we forget to ask, such as, what is time? Can ethical questions be answered by science? And do we really die? Questions like these help us examine this thing called life and will spark the big audacious ideas of tomorrow. Today, we'll define augmented and virtual reality, what they are. But even more importantly, we'll delve into the impact on humanity and what it means to us. Then we'll look toward the future, where this technology is going. So today, I've asked Aaron Frank to join us for a discussion about these incredible new advances. Aaron Frank is a writer and speaker and one of the earliest faculty members at Singularity University. He is focused on the intersection of emerging technologies and accelerating change, and is fascinated by the impact that both will have on business, society, and culture. When I began my work in information technology, I sold mainframe computers. They cost millions of dollars. You literally walk through the computer from the CPU to the disk drives to the bank of screens, they were called terminals. These systems occupied thousands of square feet and weighed tons. At that time, only the largest data centers in the world had gigabyte units of storage. Most data centers stored information in the megabytes. Back then, it cost $33,000 to purchase a single gigabyte. Today, it's 25 cents. 132 thousandth of the price. Think of that fraction. That's one over 132,000. Wow. Computers were once used for data processing. That's it, literally computing, a big calculator. But now, computing is integral to our fabric of society, how we connect, communicate, and relate. 
My years of experience in information technology sparked my interest in augmented and virtual reality. Today I'm with Aaron Frank from Singularity University. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you're the augmented reality, virtual reality guy there. T- tell us just real quickly about a little bit about you and about Singularity University and how you got into this business. Yeah. So Singularity University is a technology learning center. We're about nine years old. We were founded with support from places like Google and Cisco and Nokia. Uh, We're based at NASA Research Park in Silicon Valley. And and really what we were founded to do was look at the sort of rapid pace of development happening across a series of information technologies. Uh, And so we look at things like artificial intelligence, biotechnology, robotics, I've been here for about six years and really mainly focused at looking at the intersection of, you know, a series of these technologies with a, with a focus on augmented and virtual reality and how they might impact business, society, and, and sort of the, the future of, of where humanity is being impacted by these technologies. Oh, just that. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. No big just deal. a small thing. <laughs> right. Well, you know what's interesting about this, Aaron? Uh, whether we're talking about virtual reality or augmented reality or artificial intelligence, there's this idea of technology advancement that you alluded to a little bit earlier and this whole notion of exponentiality being being the backdrop to these great advances. And I think a guy named Jeffrey Moore was talking about this back in the 60s, that the technology doubles at half the price like every 18 months or something like that. Tell us a little bit about this dynamic of breakneck exponential progress in technology. That's a really important concept. So that that's really at the core of, of what Singularity University was founded to try and understand. One of our two founders, someone named Ray Kurzweil, he's a technologist uh, now based at Google, but spent much of his career based at MIT, has, has really spent a career looking at this idea of, of exponential growth in information technologies. And so the, the example that you're alluding to, uh, Moore's Law, is, is perhaps the most famous example of this. So, so Moore at Intel in, in the 60s, you know, as you, know as, you, as you say, noted that, you know, that basically the number of, in this case, the number of, of uh, transistors we could fit on an integrated circuit was doubling uh, every 12 to 18 months. And what this gave us was a, a, was a doubling in price performance. You know, if you think about on, on a scale, exponential growth is a pretty incredible phenomenon. So, you know, the you know, as an example, you know, a computer from 1957, just one example, there was a, I was just doing some research on this. It was called the Q7. It was built by IBM in 1957. It cost $10 billion. The machine weighed 300 tons. It had one client, the U.S. Uh, Air Force. That machine is not even a fraction of the you know, the power and performance of the iPhone that I have sitting, you know, in the palm of my hand right now. So we're seeing computers today that are billions of times more powerful measured in price performance than, you know, you know machines that were full buildings in size just, you know, 40 years ago. And the human mind is, is really not a great, the human brain is really not a, a well-designed machine at thinking in, in exponential terms very easily. It's, it's, it's actually a very difficult concept to, to grasp. You know, we're very good at predicting, you know, if I take 30 linear steps, you know, if I get, you know, take 30, you know, take one meter every step, I'm 30 meters away. 
if you were to you know take 30 exponential steps where you're doubling every step along the way the the brain's ability to to navigate that is is difficult we actually get over a billion meters away you know that's you know, that's 26 times around the planet so so that's the the gap between you know thinking in a sort of a linear fashion where we you know 30 meters away versus this exponential way uh, you know, 26 times around the earth. And it's that power, that exponential growth that we're seeing at the heart of a whole suite of, of technologies now proliferating around the world, many of which are powered with, with computation. So very interesting. And quite often, when we think about exponential math, as you were describing, and we think, well, you know, no big deal. We've gone through, let's say, 30 iterations of doubling. What's, what's 31, 2, 3, 4? We think more in, like you said, a linear sense and not realizing that is a huge hockey stick that we're hitting, especially after 30 iterations. And here we are at that point in computing technology. So the comparison uh, between a building-sized computer and an iPhone now, it's going to be even more dramatic, I would imagine, as we look forward. Yeah, I mean, as as you know, like as you say, that that hockey stick, you know, component of exponential growth is is really significant. This was an example that I re I remember taking away as an elementary school student. I think I was in third grade. Uh, one of my teachers asked our class if we could choose between two options. One option is she would give us a briefcase, and she told us, you know, in this briefcase is one million dollars, and you just you know you just get to have this. Or the other option is a penny but but it's a magic penny that will double every day for 30 days um and so you know whatever that a penny accumulates to the end of the, the 30 days is what you get to walk away with and so we you know naturally tend to assume you know at least as a you know as a you know an eight-year-old i was like you know give us the million dollars that's you know obviously the better choice but the penny is actually we know you know accumulates to more than the million dollars actually 10 times uh, what, what's in that briefcase, but the bulk of that accumulation occurs in just the final few steps. So on the 30th day, if you have $10 million, on the 31st day, you have $20 million. And so to your point about technology, if this is the amount of change we've seen in the last you know, 50 years of Moore's Law, where we've gone from computers the size of buildings to something that's the size of a cell phone in the future, you know, as we continue to see those, those doublings, you know, what stops these, these same computers even, you know, more powerful that, it, you know, that's the size of a blood cell as, you know, as like Ray Kurzweil likes to point out that, you know, the, the future of computing gets even smaller and more powerful at a, at, and if you apply this exponential thinking, to your point exactly, there's probably even more insane, crazy change that's ahead of us, far crazier than we've seen from where we've come from. As Aaron said, we have this amazing technology and we're at this inflection point, a turning point when so much is and will be changing. But what does this actually mean? Let's begin the discussion of augmented and virtual reality by defining what they are and how they're becoming part of us. It's a fundamental shift from when computing was characterized by information viewed on a screen to now when computing and technology are out in the world with and among us. How do we harness it? I'd really love to get into the future stuff, what might happen with you sooner instead of later, but let's, let's do the block and tackling about what the heck is this virtual reality and augmented reality thing? And do they overlap? Are they sort of one and the same or what's the difference? 
Yeah, that's a it's a so it's a kind of a, a crazy time in this sector within the technology landscape, and probably where you see the the chaos, you know, most vividly is like you're describing the the challenge of nomenclature. So what you know, what are these words even referring to? And it you know, there's virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, immersive computing, you know, all of these different terms that you know different technology developers are are starting to use and and we don't we're not even yet in a in a place where there's a unified set of terms to describe this stuff but maybe the the way i've sort of grab you know sort of taken on uh, talking about this stuff is modeled after how google talks about it and this is actually quite common is virtual and augmented reality can really be thought of as the same thing, but just as existing on two opposite ends of, a, of the same spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you have virtual reality, which is a usually described as a fully immersive computing environment. So usually, you know, people are familiar with these head-mounted display headsets that once, once you put something on, like an Oculus Rift or an HTC Vive or one of these headset devices, you are completely shut off from the real world around you. You're completely immersed. So Aaron, what I think I hear you saying is if we were to imagine this in our mind's eye, it's sort of like we go to it or in it. Yeah, that's a great, that's actually a great way of, of saying it. So we go into, we go to some some place. I, I, yeah, I think that's actually a very helpful way of thinking about it. Whereas on the other hand, you have augmented reality on the other end of the same spectrum is really about overlaying some sort of digital information it can be, you know, audio. Normally, most people associate it with visual augmentation. So, you know, if, if your listeners are familiar with Google Glass, or more recently, something like the Microsoft HoloLens, where you're wearing a sort of a head-mounted display which overlays visual information in front of your field of vision. So you're not cut off from your base reality around you. You're just enhancing it or changing it by adding some augmentation to that. And the reason that they're often described as being as part of the same spectrum is really what unites them is it's really about three-dimensional immersive computing. It's really, it's really about immersing someone in a digitally mediated world that's immersive, but namely it's, it's, it's a computing interface that, is, that exists in three dimensions. One of the things that really hit me when I was researching and studying some of this especially augmented reality stuff, is when the technologies are beyond our perception of visual augmentation. So here's a lamp that's actually not really here. It's digital, but it looks like it's on my table. I can kind of wrap my brain around that. But then to learn that there are technologies coming on stream that attach to all your sensory and innovations that allow you to feel and smell a virtual object. And one step further, I understand that the idea of augmented reality can even bring additional senses to our life experience that we don't yet possess. So wouldn't it be something if we could see x-rays right now? You know, our perceptual system really comes with five, five pieces. You know, we learn as a little kid, we have taste, touch, hearing, vision. Tactile. The five senses, you know, you could think of the of a human, you know, perceptual system as like an Xbox controller that only has five buttons on it. And so it makes sense that as we start to, you know, leverage other senses, you know, why why couldn't we have X-ray vision or why couldn't I mean when you when you give a uh, you know a special forces operator you know a soldier in the battlefield night vision 
goggles, you're augmenting their natural perceptual systems with a sort of augmented reality vision of, of the world around them. They don't naturally have an ability to see pitch black environments, but you know, if you create you know, night vision goggles, a great example of, of an augmented reality system. And these are the types of systems that are coming to market you know, at a price point that's far more accessible to everyday consumers. Imagine a group of surgeons performing surgery on the virtual you. A dry run before they pull out the knife. Learning in a simulated reality and limiting risk to life and limb. These are the possibilities of virtual and augmented reality. With such dramatic technologies developing at exponential rates, we have to wonder how this will affect humanity. In any new technology, there's sort of a honeymoon novelty period where it's a you know it's about the technology and we don't really have our receptors toward application because we're so caught up in the technology As a matter of fact i understand some of the earliest motion pictures uh one of the early films in france or something in the late 1800s uh, depicted a train coming down the track barreling toward you and the audience good part of the audience ran out of out of the cinema because they were afraid the train was going to hit them. They hadn't quite processed the medium yet. It was this, they couldn't, they just couldn't see straight. And I think we're dealing with some of that now. Like, how do we wrap our brains around this? How do we make sense of it? Most importantly, how do we apply it? And I think you started heading down that path. Incremental sensory apparatus, let's say in a, a military setting. And I understand sensory replacement in some ways. Like if someone's blind, they can't see, but through augmented reality, you can see through sound and reprogram how we interact with the world. Again, you're the guy in this, but it, it also is not only using the technology, but is it possible it's shaping and changing us on how we react to and live in reality? These are really fascinating topics. I'll say that a lot of my current research and writing is, is focused on a lot of the consumer sort of visual-based augmented and virtual reality platforms. So I'm not as super well-read on, on some of the developments happening, you know, in other sort of along the other spectrum of perceptual inputs like hearing and touch and so forth. And smell is one that comes up uh, quite often, you know, the idea of augmenting our ability to smell. One example of this that, you know, it's, it's a really sort of fascinating thing to see happen in the world is how Patients who, who suffer hearing loss or, or go deaf are, and, and there are now thousands of patients around the world, more than that, who use uh, cochlear implants. The idea that you can basically recreate the, the audio processing of the brain with a, with a computing device, with a, you know, a hardware device that, that runs on software. There are, are thousands of patients that have these basically you know, artificial hearing devices that gives them an ability to, to hear where otherwise they wouldn't be able to. And because it's software and because it's connected directly to the sort of the, the brain's ability to process audio information, could you, and, and, and there, are, there are teams looking at, you know, being able to do this certainly with vision, you know, could you create superhuman abilities? The idea that, you know, people will have these these tools that allow them to, to hear things and see things and experience things that their you know, non-technologically enhanced counterparts you know, wouldn't be able to, to have access to. And so this already, I mean, we already live in that world where there's you know, software-powered, augmented systems influencing our ability to hear and see. 
So there's a very human impact, maybe even redefining, you know, in a big picture sense here at Big Audacious Idea, we tend to stay up in the clouds and really think about what's happening, what are the biggest questions and biggest ideas on the planet. And these technologies certainly could point to a number of those. In one case, I read about the notion of augmented and virtual realities allowing us to create carbon copies of ourselves digitally so that we have this living avatar that could be Im immortal. There's like really wild stuff to imagine uh, if Moore's Law continues to do its hockey stick thing. Uh, but you know, you, you're helping us sort of get back down to earth in the current reality and the tangible application of this stuff. And you alluded to it earlier. Tell us a little bit about some of the B2C consumer business applications of these technologies that we can sort of wrap our brains around not only today, but apply today. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, it's actually interesting. I'm doing some research and I'm supposed to get coffee with the, the CEO of this company next week. But just, just to kind of take it, I can go big, you know, head in the clouds question and draw it back down. He sent me a video to watch about his, his company's concept, uh, which I can describe in a moment. But he is working on, and he kind of, it was kind of a casual throwaway example at the end of one of these interviews I was watching. His company is building a virtual world where there will be an AI component where the AI will basically become like you, exactly how you just described, a carbon copy of yourself. It will learn how you uh, move in virtual reality. So it basically adopts your mannerisms or sort of your your motion, you know, how you how you walk, how you move your arms when you talk and so forth. It'll learn your speaking habits from following your social media feeds or any any kind of online writing you do. And it will live as this perpetual, ever persisting AI copy of yourself that is always interacting in this virtual world with a whole collection of other sort of AI carbon copies of other people. And so this is, this is kind of a side project of a company that's doing a very sort of, to, to draw this back to your question of sort of the current things happening today, the company is basically building a way for virtual reality advertisers to monetize their, their concepts by tracking where people are looking and how long they're looking at something, which, you know, kind of has some interesting questions and ethical questions around, you know, surveillance and, and the idea that in, in virtual reality and if you, you spend time in these virtual reality worlds, where you look, how long you look at something can all be tracked and measured and, you know, is producing data. One of the interesting things about, about that, Aaron, is, is it enters in a whole nother discussion, number of discussions that we cover here on the program. Wanted to share with you one of the initial thought bubbles for this episode was the following question. Imagine, here's an idea. Imagine transportation went away. That physical matter doesn't matter like it used to. And that's why it led to this virtual reality and augmented reality concept. Because imagine for a moment if you just downloaded and printed an iPad, you didn't buy it, you didn't pay for it online and have it shipped. You just print the thing out. And if exponential technologies gets there, and some of what I was reading is this idea of 4D printing, which is fascinating. The concept of morphable output. You print out something from a 3D printer, and then it changes shape or form dependent upon what you need when you need it. Now, suddenly, we're having a global impact. We don't need trucks anymore. We don't need highways. You know, I'm wondering, again, with a big picture hat on, what the future holds uh, if some of these technologies really take flight. That's a fascinating intersection you're describing, this, you know, this notion that software 
goods and services or assets that are built on code as opposed to you know physical assets certainly you know certainly have a an impact on you know the idea of you know carbon footprint and how much of you know the physical world will need to navigate this world you know an example is i met i imagine many people routinely don't have flashlights as much as they used to because a flashlight is you know for most people or a lot of people is just lines of code on a on your on your phone now so that removes the need for a factory that is producing these physical things that you have to put on a truck to drive from the factory to a store where someone will come and you know pick up the physical thing and take it home and so you know it's not immediately clear you know how some of this how some of these technologies you know actually impact our you know our our ability to consume you know the physical world around us but it certainly does raise interesting questions like you say about how the nature of this stuff changes what we consume just one example of this and it's kind of gets back to your last question for anyone and i actually don't have uh, the new iphone but for anyone that's using the iphone i believe it's actually an iPhone 7 or above so if anyone has the new iPhone they can actually download so the new iPhone software system has a development kit called AR kit which is powering a lot of these sort of early experimental augmented reality platforms and there's one really fascinating one called Tape Measure which is basically a way that you can use your phone to hold up your to basically hold up your phone and use the depth sensing element on the camera and you can basically just measure anything you want you can measure the width of your you know your tv screen you can measure basically anything that you that would normally require a, a physical tape measure you can just use the camera on your phone and just get a sense for for how you know for measuring things that you know it's kind of a cool example of sort of an early consumer thing but maybe the idea that these companies that make physical tape measures in the future may not be as relevant or necessary give us a little one two a little bit more about what not only singularity university is but what does the term singularity mean it's an interesting question it comes up sometimes in our, yeah it's it's a good it's a good question this term singularity university which can be confusing because we have uh, Ray Kurzweil who of course is as one of our co-founders he uses the term in a very specific way so he wrote a book called uh, the singularity is near and so his use of the term singularity is used to describe this hypothetical future moment in which he describes this world in which the dominant information processor is no longer our own human brains you know humans are you know incredible tool making creatures but actually software or even artificial intelligence that's capable of sort of developing and improving upon itself at a rate far faster than than any human uh, would be able to do. So this future moment in which machines or or software becomes the dominant information processor is this term that the Kurzweil refers to as as a sort of technological singularity. The term itself is actually borrowed from physics and it's a term used to describe any environment in which we don't really have any sense of uh, making sense of. So sort of in often used example is the event horizon of a black hole is is referred to as a singularity because our, our known laws of physics no longer apply in that part of our reality and so so a singularity is is a, is a sort of a term used to describe any environment in which we don't really know what's going on or we don't really have any models or frameworks to help help make sense of So Singularity University sort of borrows this term from physics to and and it's kind of a way of describing 
this world that we've moved into that is just incredibly impacted by this rate of technological change that, that really we've never seen before and really just trying to navigate and, and build models and frameworks of making sense of it. No, that's very helpful. And I believe Peter in Abundance, it's been a while since I've read it, refers to this concept when it comes to information communication technology advancement and its exponentiality. When it hits singularity, i.e. more powerful and quote unquote smarter than the human brain, then if it's smarter, well, then we can't even understand it. So to your point, we get to this point where we've never seen it before and we don't even know how to process it, understand it. Another writer, in addition to this, uh, Dr. Uh, Helen Papagianis with Augmented Human, I don't know if you've read some of uh, Yovel Noah Harari's writings in Homo Deus and, and Sapiens, by chance? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed both of those. Yeah, and I think what's amazing there is at times takes sort of a dark look at this human synthetic convergence that happens and super, super human smartness that may be a machine or part human, and that there becomes this sort of superior super class uh, of the haves in a big way, and then everyone else is sort of disposable. There's a lot of social implications of this stuff we don't quite imagine yet or understand yet, isn't there? I think this is this topic is is interesting. Actually, on the topic of virtual reality, I, I think Harari's work is really fascinating because mainly one of the the key themes in his in his work is this idea that what keeps human society glued together are shared stories. And if you think of what a you know what a story is, it's basically a, a shared reality. And so you know things like as Harari writes in his, in his book, you know, capitalism is a, is a shared story. Money is a, is a shared story. I believe he refers to them as, you know, myths in his, in his book. And these, these myths become sort of, a, sort of a narrative glue keeping societies together because they have a, you know, a, a, a world view to buy into together, which helps maintain the, the, the healthy functioning of a, of a civilization. If you think about these virtual environments, these virtual realities we're creating is a, it's kind of a, an interesting new ingredient to society that's trying to keep things moving forward. So again, we are just, I think, both rather aptly talking about it's hard to imagine what is coming next. And we may not even be able to understand it, even if we could see what's coming. Actually, could I ask you a question? I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious. Have you have you spent time in any of these social virtual worlds at all? Like, did you did you ever have a Second Life account or, or spend time in, in something like Second Life? I'm, I'm curious if you've had experience there. I did. I've had some experience in Second Life. Boy, I, that's got to be 10 years ago, maybe? Yeah. It was a fad and then it went away. I think in part because I, I didn't have a a clear view toward an application, real value. Again, if the initial attraction is novelty and things stay in the novel mode, novelty will wane. And if there's not something, then some sort of content or application that remains. Like, for example, imagine the telephone. It, you know, at first, it was an amazing thing. People would make a phone call just because you could. It wasn't about the conversation. Well, after time, it's not like, wow, this amazing thing. It's about the conversation. I never got to the conversation part personally with Second Life. I would make an assertion, and I didn't, I didn't consciously say to myself this if I stopped using, when I stopped using Second Life, but I, I would make this argument. I think right now, 
there's a great irony here. This technology and our hyperconnectivity are hyper-transacting through technology and these things in our palms is in a way disconnecting us from full, vivid, immersive human experiences, multi-sensory. And we are thirsting because we're humans and we live through story and experience, not transactions. So I think there's a marketplace application, make business sense of it, that will keep one from jumping from novelty to continued sustained use. But I think there's a human experience part. And that's where I think what's happening with virtual and augmented reality is that as it becomes multi-sensory and it enriches connection, like one of the things I was reading about was the idea of this hala transportation or hala transport. I don't, I might not have the term, holoportation, I think, holoportation. And the idea of, you know, we just know when we're Skyping and I feel connected with you. It's amazing. You're in Amsterdam, but we're not in the same room together. But if, if, if an avatar of you was sitting in the chair in front of me, but you're in Amsterdam, you know, wow, what a great thing to sit down and have a pint with you, even though you're there and I'm here. When we get closer to that kind of thing, then I think we will feed a human need, a human need of connection, of relation, connectedness and meaning, not just transact. That's really well said. I think that's, that's really fascinating. I think it's insightful too to to hear you describe the, you know, the the comparison with the telephone and the novelty of of you know the first time you try out a technology, it's cool, and that's actually very much the the state of things that we're seeing with augmented reality, with some of these new applications that are you know like the tape measure thing that I that I mentioned before. But to your point about once these tools become an extension of human connection, then we'll see some really interesting things. Uh, happened. I mean, I can look in, in my own life, my parents, they're in their, their 70s now, they're not really, you know, technology early adopters, but they, you know, they do have tablets, you know, this kind of a new, cool, you know, edgy, not edgy, but, you know, technologically advanced thing. The only reason they got tablet computers was so they, they could stay in touch with their grandkids that live, you know, halfway across the US in, a, in another state. And so when the same is true of virtual reality and the holoportation project you mentioned at Microsoft's a cool example. There is one platform which which I've been following in virtual reality and, and writing about as a journalist for about a year and a half now called Altspace, which is a social online virtual world. So very cartoonish, like kind of like Second Life as you described, but what they're doing very simply are creating these virtual worlds for people to interact and participate in activities as if they are together. And so, you know, I could, as you mentioned, I could be here in, in Amsterdam, you're, you know, in the US, and we could sit in a virtual room and do anything from, we could watch YouTube videos together. I've gone to comedy shows in alt space. I've gone to film festivals. I, I actually went to Coachella uh, and, and watched a, a viewing party of Coachella, the, the music festival in alt space. And, and maybe the, the most interesting example I, I, from my own experience of using it, I have a friend, so I live in San Francisco, and so I have another friend who, who lives in San Francisco as well, who I, for a while, I wasn't seeing in real life that often, but every week we would meet up in alt space, and I would know it was him because his avatar, even though it's a, it's a very basic sort of cartoon looking thing, it tracks his head motion. So when he talks, he has this very distinct head tilt that he does, this kind of odd mannerism he has. And just by hearing his voice and seeing this cartoon robot looking avatar, 
it starts to build this presence of, wow, like I'm really actually connected and speaking with Mike, my friend in San Francisco, who I don't really get to, to meet up with in, in real life as much as because our schedules are, are kind of busy. So we're already seeing very early examples of these digitally mediated worlds, which are very quickly trying to do the thing that you just described, which is, I think is a, a really insightful point, which is to create human connection and to create more realistic, uh, sort of sort of extend outward from from the way that people already inherently connect with each other. And so that's what these tools will need to, to do. And we're seeing some really interesting experiments in that space. And so Altspace is one, one platform that, that I'd like to use that does that. I think we're both arriving, may I assert, uh, at the conclusion that yes, marketplace, commerce, economy, these technologies benefit there for sure. But the human experience is the, at the core of, of anything. And it, that's been the test of time. So as exciting as this stuff can be, it can be overwhelming, even frightening. It's up to us to be open, to experiment, to embrace these technologies. It's also important for us to think about how we can use these technologies for good, for human progress and connection. Not for sheer consumption or worse destruction. Any tool being good or bad is a function of its use. It's our choice. So the application is the key. Next week, we begin to sum it all up. During this season, we've delved into mind-spinning topics of technology, reality, life, death. All these topics relate to how we as humans solve problems, generate ideas, and transform our world. Advances through history have caused certain revolutions of thought, technology, socially or otherwise. How do we know when we're at one of those points in history? How do we transition from periods of revolution to periods of status quo? How does the new become old? And how do we reinvent to the next revolution? This is where we'll go with our guest, Lev Gonick, the CIO at Arizona State University. This is your host and co-executive producer, Craig James. And you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. A special thanks to producer Bridget Coyne, audio engineer Eric Coltnow, music director David Allen Moss, my co-executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Big Audacious Idea is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media. Find us on your favorite podcast app or go to evergreenpodcasts.com. Big Audacious Idea. See the big picture. best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.